You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. The second anniversary of Russia's invasion of its neighbour Ukraine has just passed. Cynically, many people are glad that it's gone on for two years because it meant that the swift Russian victory, which was uh, widely predicted, did not occur. And therefore, lots of other implications did not occur either. But nonetheless, a war is going on in the middle of winter on the fringes of Europe, and it is ghastly. With me is Director, Investment Institute at 91 in London, and that's Philip Saunders. Philip, it goes on and it gets shunted aside occasionally in one's thinking and on news programmes but it's there and it's very, very real. It is very real and it's um, it's almost unimaginable. You know, this is the kind of thing that uh, we thought we'd never see again and, you know, it's basically reminiscent of, you know, probably the First World War more than anything else, but with a lot of modern technology and, you know, you've seen the awesome destructive power of modern technology, which is pretty horrendous. But this is basically, you know, even though uh, Putin's uh, initial plan failed, you know, they have now taken about, you know, just under 20% of uh, the territory of Ukraine. And they remain extremely committed to uh, grinding down the West, who are supporting Ukraine, um, and obviously grinding down Ukraine's resources as well. And Russia, of course, you know, it has its challenges, but it's a much bigger state. It's got uh, a lot more modern weapons. Um, and one way or another, it's getting access to the parts it needs to build more weapons. Um, and it all is also exporting energy despite sanctions. So it's stalemate at the moment. Um, if anything, the Russians are doing somewhat better militarily because of the shell famine the Ukrainians are experiencing. But uh, it's a massive conflict along a very long front and, you know, which is resulting in a lot of loss of life on a daily basis. Yes, indeed. And talking of that, as an aside, Vladimir Zelensky announced his official figures of Ukraine soldiers' deaths, and that was 31,000. The UN has said it's more like 60,000, 70,000. But anyway, that, as I said, is an aside. When I first uh, realised that the war was coming, because there were tens of thousands of Russian tanks on the border, and it wasn't a military exercise, as many people said, don't worry about it. Of course, we were worried about it. And immediately you think of sectors of the market, asset classes, if you like, that immediately are Ukraine-linked, i.e. the wheat price, the gas price, the oil price because of pipelines and so forth. And the wheat price went shooting up and the natural gas price went shooting up to nearly $4 a BTU, now back at 167 which says that certain markets, certain supply shocks have been factored in and now reduced. But there surely will be shocks in the future. Yes, I mean, I think that we live in a world where there are going to be more supply shocks because you've got the sort of, you know, geostrategic tectonic plates shifting in a meaningful way. And so, you know, essentially you've got, you know, it's really about the two great powers, the US, the hegemon, if you like, uh, and the rising power, which, of course, is China. You know, the Ukraine crisis is basically all about, you know, Russia's increasingly becoming China's vassal. But it's a sort of anti-American coalition that is actually broadly supported by the so-called global south. And it's speeding the evolution or the move towards uh, a much more multipolar world. 
and the supply chains having to shift, energy security becoming a big issue, uh, defence spending, you know, the peace dividend going out of the window, defence spending having to sort of go through the roof. So, uh, you know, these are dramatic changes that are not going to be reversed by some kind of uh, sort of peace treaty signed between the Ukrainians and the Russians, which seems like a pretty remote possibility at the moment. Yes, as long as Mr Putin is there, and that's my comment, not 91's. Defence spending, you mentioned, it's going higher, and I notice with interest, for some extraordinary reason, I was watching German television the other day, and um, I saw that there is a German arms company just went to market. I I think it makes specialised bits of kit for tanks, and um, it immediately, on its IPO, rocketed up. And there's another big German defence company doing rather well as well. So there's all these unintended consequences. You've you've talked about politics, you've talked about a number of things uh, that one would never have thought of on the first day of the invasion. No, because I think that uh, there was a general assumption uh, that, you know, Russia would not you know, actually uh, invade Ukraine. Uh, and that's clearly what they wanted everybody to think. So it's a successful bit of disinformation. Yeah. But, you know, Putin has clearly seen his chance to uh, reconfigure the, uh, you know, geostrategic realities in Europe. And, you know, it's quite clear that, uh, you know, he's had a plan for a long time to restore Russia's fortunes to you know, maybe the sort of state it was in in 1991, i.e. with significant control over neighbouring countries such as Ukraine, Belarus, possibly the Baltic states, although they're now within NATO, and countries, you know, like Georgia as well. Um, I, a restoration, you know, bid to restore uh, Russian power and influence in a pretty uh, sort of colonial power kind of way. Um, which is reminiscent of basically, you know, the 19th century and earlier. Yes. If Russia did prevail fairly quickly, if, for example, the United States, their political infighting means that the 60 to $65 billion worth of aid does not go to Ukraine. It's been allocated, but it's being blocked by certain Republicans. If they went ahead and won in the summer when it gets uh, easier to fight, and that's a crude way of putting it, do you think that they would be emboldened by that, or rather Putin would be emboldened by that and immediately march into Warsaw? So I think that um, he would certainly be emboldened by that. And, um, you know, because of Russia controlling both Ukraine and Belarus, you know, becomes a sort of, you know, more serious power. Obviously, it's economically advantageous to uh, Russia as well in terms of raw material wealth of Ukraine. However, the you know Russian armed forces have you know, taken a real pasting uh, and a lot of equipment has been lost. And, you know, there will be a period where Russia has to rearm. Uh, But Russia is basically sort of stepping up a war economy and, you know, economically sort of uh, geared towards now uh, producing armaments on a scale that's not matched by Western Europe. So I think that, um, you know, it's taking time for Western Europe to wake up to the realities that uh, clearly, you know, the Baltic states and Ukraine and Poland have uh, former Soviet Union countries have all understood all along. But France and Germany basically have been late to the realisation of what's really been going on. So I think that this is a massive face off. And particularly if American support is lacking, then the burden's going to fall more squarely on Europe. And, you know, does it have the productive capacity to uh, to support Ukraine sufficiently, you know, without US support? So, I mean, these are challenging times and the stakes are 
higher than people really imagine. This is just not a sort of distant conflict. You know, this is, uh, you know, this is a big thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, Russia's bid to rise again and recast the world in terms of uh, its geopolitical structure. And, uh, you know, that's a big thing. And it will impact markets and it will create a more fractious world in the future. We'll come to markets in a moment, but there's one other thing I thought about in an article that I read. And there's one, maybe one good thing that comes out of this, if anything good can come from war, is pushing governments to accelerate green energy, renewable energy initiatives. And it seems to be uh, continuing apace. Yes, it has. And, and really, the sort of, you know, the driver is energy security. It's not so much, you know, the challenges that we have in terms of climate. It's the harder, nearer-term realities of energy security. And so that has added a massive boost, particularly in Europe, uh, but also elsewhere, to the sort of build-out of alternative energy sources. And so, therefore, that paradoxically is a sort of, you know, it's a good thing, but, you know, resulting, you know, it's unfortunate given the circumstances that are driving it. The conflict remains relevant, in other words, that's what you're saying. And uh, although we get uh, sidetracked by other ghastly conflicts, Palestine, Israel, for example, the fact is that this one's been going and could get uh, considerably worse and continue for considerably longer. So it remains relevant for, for world leaders, it remains relevant for economists and markets and also investors. Now, you've got to keep an eye on this, I would imagine. I suppose you at 91, of all people, are doing so. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, geopolitics is a difficult thing in the sense uh, from a market perspective, you know, because markets' capacity to ignore geopolitics is you know, pretty, pretty meaningful. Uh, so you know, look at the collapse in price of uh, natural gas and, uh, and oil that's occurred since the spikes uh, around about the time of the invasion two years ago. You know, that's pretty dramatic. You know, it means that markets are sort of sanguine or appear to be sanguine about these things. So we have to be careful not to factor in, you know, too much of a risk premium or pay too much attention to that. However, we need to keep a weather eye on it because the tail risks are significant. Uh, and it means that there can be shocks. Uh, and it means that basically you've got, um, you know, highly armed countries such as Iran, via its proxies and so forth, uh, that, that want to disrupt the Western trading system. And that's a sort of, you know, on a scale that is, you know, very different to, you know, what we've experienced, you know, over the last 30 years or so. So, so that is meaningful. We need to keep a weather eye on it. It means that basically, you know, although there is this tendency to try and put everything in the Magnificent Seven, mm. you know, that diversification, you know, still matters. Um, and, you know, if you're going to build a resilient portfolio, you just can't put all of your eggs in one basket. You do have to think carefully about diversification. Let me ask you this, Philip, when a, an investment team sits down at 91 and talks about its strategy, is Russia, Ukraine mentioned and say, we must watch out for this and get ready to move on this particular instrument or asset class, should things worsen? Does that happen? So, yeah. So in terms of running particularly multi-asset portfolios, you have to have fire drills. You have to consider negative scenarios and understand how your portfolio might behave 
in those circumstances. Now, clearly, some things are imponderable. <laughs> mm. you, you can't, uh, you, you know, the unknown unknowns. Uh, but we take it very seriously. We believe it's really about understanding, you know, our sort of exposure from a risk perspective. And risk isn't just quantitative you know, involve subjective decisions as well. And then if things do change rapidly, you know, for tactical nuclear weapons, for example, you know, markets are not going to take that terribly well, are they? I wouldn't have thought so, no. I think that's probably on the bottom of their list of inputs when they sit down at their desks, the investment professionals. Is there any way you can say, well, because of Russia, Ukraine, we have adjusted our strategies to being more exposed to this or less exposed to that? Or is, is it just an event-driven strategy? So I think that um, it's a sort of continual reminder not to to be running risk at full throttle, you know, is probably unwise. Um, and uh, and it means that, you know, obviously, as I mentioned, diversification remains important. And so, you know, fixed income does have a role. Gold probably has a role, too. Yes, gold has been a particular favourite of certain central banks over the last couple of years. Philip, thank you very much for your analysis. Philip Saunders is Director, Investment Institute at 91 in London. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.